Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is February 27th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's episode is Give a Little Bit of Oseltamivir to Pediatric Patients Admitted with Influenza? And our guest skeptic today is Dr. Merisu Rueda Altez, who is a pediatric infectious disease fellow at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She is also the president of the junior section of the Society for Pediatric Research. Dr. Rueda Altez, welcome to SGMPEDS. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dennis. Excited to discuss this article. Yeah, and this article I think is uh, pretty pertinent given that we are kind of coming out of a fairly bad influenza season. And I know there was a lot of debate amongst my colleagues about whether or not we should prescribe Oseltamivir, and then that coupled with the shortages that we were experiencing. Man, I'm really excited to get into this episode with you. I'm very excited as well. I understand that you brought us a case. Yes, Dennis. So the case is of a five-year-old child that presents to the emergency department in the midst of the flu season with three days of fever, upper respiratory symptoms, and malaise. His parents also report that he has lost his appetite and is refusing to drink liquids. Nesopharyngeal PCR testing is positive for influenza A. On physical exam, he is tired appearing and showing signs of respiratory distress with tachypnea and accessory muscle use. His lips look dry and cracked, His oxygen saturation is hovering around 88 to 90%. His chest radiograph does not demonstrate any focal opacities. After a discussion with his parents, you all agree that it is best for him to be admitted for the IV hydration and close monitoring. His parents ask you, a few years ago when we had the flu, we took a medication that helped reduce the length of our symptoms. Would he benefit from that too? And can you give us a little bit of background? There's a lot of societies that recommend this medication or oseltamivir. Yes. So oseltamivir is actually recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for the treatment of influenza for both adults and children. Possible benefits include the reduction in duration of symptoms and improvement of outcomes in hospitalized patients. Most of these recommendations are based on data from adult studies during the H1N1 pandemic with limited pediatric data. And the SGM has covered the use of oseltamivir for influenza on SGM 98 and SGM 312. Despite the recommendations from these various organizations, there remains some controversy and skepticism about the use of oseltamivir due to unpublished trial data, lack of access to the research data by the authors, and ghost-written papers. The BMJ was involved in a long legal battle with the manufacturer that you can read about at a link that we'll provide in the blog. But suffice it to say that there were more harms than originally reported, including nausea and vomiting, neuropsychiatric events, and headaches. And it is possible that the potential benefits were exaggerated. So Marisu, what's the clinical question that we're trying to answer today? So our clinical question is, will early administration of oseltamivir reduce length of hospitalization and complications of influenza infection? And what's our reference? Our reference is an article by Walsh et al. titled Association of Early Oseltamivir with Improved Outcomes in Hospitalized Children 
with influenza from 2007 to 2020, published in JAMA Pediatrics in 2022. Okay, let's break it down by the PICO questions first. What population was included in this study? Children less than 18 years of age from the Pediatric Health Information System database hospitalized with influenza from 2007 to 2020. And who did they exclude? They excluded transfers from other hospitals, repeated encounters, and death or ECMO on day zero or one to avoid immortal time bias. And what was the exposure that was measured? The exposure was early administration of oseltamivir, so on hospital day zero or one. And the comparison? They compared it to late administration of oseltamivir, so on hospital day two or later, or no administration of the medication. Okay, and the outcomes, what was the primary outcome they were looking at? Their primary outcome was hospital length of stay. And what were their secondary outcomes? Seven-day hospital readmission, late ICU transfer, and a composite outcome of in-hospital death or ECMO use. And can you give us the author's conclusions? The author's conclusions were that early use of oseltamivir is associated with shorter hospital stay and lower odds of seven-day readmission, ICU transfer, ECMO use, and death. Okay, moving on to our quality checklist. First question, did the study address a clearly focused issue? I believe so, yes. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? I'm a little bit unsure on this one, because I think that the use of database analysis can be helpful in lieu of a clinical trial that can be costly or sometimes unethical. Uh, However, it comes with a lot of limitations that we'll chat about a little bit later. Okay, third question. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? I am also kind of unsure about this one. The authors use ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes to identify patients diagnosed with influenza infection, which is limited to provider coding preferences in each participating hospitals on the FIS database. Although they do cite previous pediatric studies on influenza using ICD coding with high specificity. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I am also a bit unsure on this one. The authors used medication utilization data to determine if oseltamivir was prescribed on the hospital day zero or one and appropriately conducted sensitivity analysis to determine if late administration of oseltamivir was biasing the results through misclassification. Uh, but no data was available on pre-hospital medications. Question five, was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? I do believe so. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Like I mentioned before, I'm a bit unsure about that one. Do you think the follow-up of subjects was complete enough? I'm also unsure on this one because there is no information on encounters or readmission outside of the FIS hospitals. How precise are these results? Mm, I'm a bit unsure on that, on the precision of the results. Do you believe the results? I think I do. And can the results be applied to the local population? Yes. Also, time of year, it's a low-risk intervention that I, as a pediatric infectious diseases doctor, would highly encourage for a high-risk population. For low-risk pediatric patients, though, it's still okay as long as it is in the appropriate clinical context, as we will talk about it later. Oh, man, I am so looking forward to that discussion. Okay, we're finishing up our checklist here. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. In the funding of the study, were there any conflicts of interest? 
we did not note any conflicts of interest. All right, let's move on to the results. So there were 55,799 patients that were included who were diagnosed with influenza by ICD-9 or 10 coding. Of those, 56% were male and mean age was 3.6 years. Approximately 60% received early oseltamivir, 7% received it on day two or later, and about a third were completely untreated. Marisu, can you give us the key result? Children treated with early oseltamivir was associated with a shorter length of stay and lower odds of seven-day readmission, late ICU transfer, ECMO use, and death. All right, let's break it down now. Let's talk about the primary outcome or length of stay. Give us some numbers here. Yes. So for the early oseltamivir group, the median days of length of stay were three days with an IQR of two to five. And for the patients that did not receive early oseltamivir, the median length of stay was four days with an IQR of two to eight. And the odds ratio was 0.52 with a 95 confidence interval range of 0.52 to 0.53. Okay, and the secondary outcomes, let's talk about the seven-day hospital readmission first. For the early oseltamivir group, the seven-day hospital readmission risk was 3.5% when compared to the no early oseltamivir group, which was 4.8%. And the odds ratio was 0.72. And what about late ICU transfers? The percent of late ICU transfers in the early oseltamivir group was 2.4% compared to the no early oseltamivir group, which was 5.5%, with an odds ratio of 0.41. Okay, and the last secondary outcome here was the composite outcome of in-hospital death and ECMO. Yeah, this is kind of an unusual outcome in children, but there was still a difference noted. In the early oseltamivir group, it was 0.9%, and the no early oseltamivir group was 1.4%, with an odds ratio of 0.63. Great. And this is now moving on to my favorite section. And we already had a lot of good discussion. So I'm really, really looking forward to diving deep into this. Are you ready? Ready. Nerdy point number one, the diagnosis of influenza. So the diagnosis of influenza for this study was determined by review of ICD-9 and 10 codes. And the authors do cite previous research that administrative databases have high specificity that they cited at 99% and a positive predictive value that was 60 to 88% for laboratory confirmed influenza. Now, these two studies that they cited only looked at records from one or three institutions, respectively. And the data set used in this study is significantly larger and encompasses 36 hospitals which I would assume there may be much more variation in diagnosis and coding. In addition, the gold standard for diagnosis of influenza infection is a positive nasopharyngeal PCR test. Patients could have been missed if positive and not coded as such. Also, patients who were not tested but had symptoms suggestive of influenza could have been coded as having influenza when they didn't. Yeah, using ICD codes is an imperfect gold standard or copper standard. There's the possibility that if the doctors knew who got treated and who didn't, they could code according to the patient's response. So if the patient got better with treatment, then they must have had the flu, right? And if they didn't get better with treatment, would they still code them as such? It just makes everything kind of muddy. And Marisu, I recall something about 
a lingering positivity of respiratory viral PCR testing as well. Would you apply this to influenza infections? Yes. And this can be another long conversation that ID doctors have to deal with uh, on a daily basis. But respiratory viruses can leave a trail of PCR positivity long after they are no longer an active problem for the patient. This is much more prevalent for rhinoenterovirus, for which we have seen positivity for more than three weeks in immunocompromised patients. But there was a study that showed that influenza can remain positive for at least a week after symptom onset. So for this study, I think of a patient who had influenza a week ago and presents now with new respiratory distress, still influenza positive, but now has a bacterial superinfection with strep pneumonia or with staph aureus. Those patients would not benefit from oseltamivir, but may still have erroneously been coded as influenza positive and included in the study. Moving on to our second point, which is the duration of illness and timing of oseltamivir. We had mentioned a big limitation of the FIS database before on SGM384 was that it lacks clinical information. So we can't see anything about what happened prior to the hospital encounter for each patient. I agree this is a major limitation. With influenza, the recommendations state that the greatest benefit in the administration of antivirals is within the first 48 hours of symptoms. There may still be some benefit in hospitalized patients after that period, but what I mentioned before is the main recommendation. So there's a possibility that a portion of the providers that did not treat those 33% of patients with oseltamivir may have been influenced by the duration of illness prior to presentation, and we don't know that. Yeah, not only do we not know when the illness started, but we also don't know when the child got started on oseltamivir prior to their presentation at the hospital. And this may be the reason for why they did not receive it again during admission. It also raises the possibility that there was a portion of patients who were classified into the early oseltamivir group inappropriately. Our third nerdy point is about exclusion due to immortal time bias. The authors chose to exclude encounters with discharge, in-hospital death, or ECMO use on hospital day zero or one due to immortal time bias. And this is because there is a period of time before researchers are able to classify participants as being treated. This ended up excluding 13,641, or 19.2% of eligible patients. And given the limitations that we mentioned before, Another interpretation of this is that there were potentially 19.2% of patients for which oseltamivir wouldn't have had any impact on their hospital length of stay, death, or ECMO use. Our fourth point is about the adverse effects. Another thing that the study did not report was the adverse effects of oseltamivir administration. The Cochrane Review from 2014 that included clinical study reports from drug manufacturers demonstrated that the use of oseltamivir increases the risk of nausea, vomiting, with a number needed to harm of 19 in children, and some psychiatric effects as well. Adverse effects are important when weighing the potential risks and benefits of any treatment or intervention. Our fifth and last nerdy point is about future research. So the authors write, quote, it would likely be unethical to perform a randomized controlled trial of oseltamivir given the current recommendations, so observational studies such as this one are the most practical way to evaluate its use, end quote. 
Now, with respect to all of their hard work with this study, I'm going to have to disagree with this statement. Observational trials allow us to establish associations and can only control for known confounding factors. I think it is fair to say that the evidence for oseltamivir is mixed at best and still very limited in the pediatric population. And we shouldn't shy away from questioning clinical guidelines or standards of care. This is important because we want to drive progress and strive to provide the best care for our patients based on the best evidence. So personally, I don't find the idea of a randomized controlled trial unethical and would love to see a multi-center, placebo-controlled, blinded, randomized controlled trial to assess the effectiveness of oseltamivir in the pediatric population. Marisu, can you comment on the author's conclusion compared to the SGM conclusion? Early oseltamivir use in hospitalized children with influenza may be associated with shorter hospital length of stay and lower odds of seven-day readmission, ICU transfers, ECMO use, and death, but this finding should be interpreted within the limitations of the study. And can you give us an SGEM bottom line? Also, tamivir administration for treatment of influenza in hospitalized children may be associated with shorter lengths of stay, lower odds of readmission, ICU transfer, ECMO use, and death, but more multicenter blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized trials are necessary to assess its efficacy. And Marisu, I'm going to add that at this point, we do not have high-quality evidence to support the routine use of oseltamivir in the treatment of children admitted to the hospital with suspected influenza. And can you resolve the case for us? You tell the parents that there is an option to start their child on a medication called oseltamivir. You discuss the potential benefits and potential harms with the family and the admitting team and come to a shared decision. The child is admitted to the hospital and started an oral oseltamivir. Okay, how are you going to apply this clinically? Oseltamivir should be administered as early as possible after the diagnosis of influenza in hospitalized children, especially for patients at high risk for complications. Although the evidence for children is not as strong as for adults, Given the low rates of severe complications in pediatrics, the low risk of the intervention, and additional benefits, for example, reduction of duration of symptoms, those justify the initiation. All right, Marisu, I am very, very grateful for you sharing your expertise, but please forgive me for offering a counterpoint. As I mentioned before, I don't find the evidence for the efficacy of oseltamivir as strong or convincing as others may. And I also don't have a problem being a, what some people know as, non-expert EM contrarian and going against the grain a little bit. But this was a retrospective observational study with many excluded patients, a fuzzy diagnosis, unblinded, had unmeasured confounders, and I feel like in circumstances where we may be uncertain of the exact benefits and risks of a treatment, then we should just be candid with our patients and families and admit that uncertainty. It can actually help build rapport and trust and lead to a much richer shared decision-making. But you know what? The literature is only one of the pillars of evidence-based medicine. So we still must consider clinical judgment and the patient or family's values and preferences. So, Marisu, even though we might not agree on everything, 
I am still really, really thankful that we had this discussion because I definitely learned from you. And I hope that we can still be friends. We most definitely can, Dennis. I, as any other pediatric infectious disease doctor, appreciate other providers sharing the antimicrobial stewardship sentiment that not only extends to antibiotics, but to the safe and conscious use of all medications. Okay, and what are you going to tell the patient and the family in this case? I would tell them that there is a medication called oseltamivir that has some data to show that it may decrease symptom duration of an influenza. It may also reduce the time you have to stay in the hospital and other complications, but we are not really certain. On the other hand, it can cause some side effects like vomiting, headache, and some neuropsychiatric effects like confusion or abnormal behavior. We can discuss what you would prefer to do. Such a great explanation that ties all those three pillars of EBM together. Well, Dr. Rueda Altez, thank you so very much for joining us on SGMPEDS. Thank you so much for the invitation, Dennis. And before we go, do you mind giving us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.